It's the Media Law Podcast. We get philosophical in this episode as we ask whether the marketplace of ideas theory of free speech can survive in a post-truth world. Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. We've got something a bit different for you this time. Often we concern ourselves on this podcast with particular bits of legal doctrine. In this episode, however, we're going to take a step back from the doctrine and have a discussion about a more fundamental matter, the theory of free speech itself. Free speech and freedom of the press in particular of course, features in media-related legal norms across much of the world. But it is worth taking some time to consider why we find free speech so important, and to subject our theories of free speech's importance to scrutiny and critique. In recent years, there has been much talk, particularly in the United States, that we have begun to inhabit a post-truth world. This post-truthism is the world of fake news and alternative facts and similar monikers much beloved of the 45th US president. One of the best-known liberal justifications for free speech rights is the so-called marketplace of ideas theory, associated with thinkers going right back to John Stuart Mill in the 19th century and still popular in jurisprudential circles today. Put simply, this is the notion that freely spoken ideas compete for attention in a marketplace just like any other goods. The best, supposedly the truest, ideas will flourish, whilst inadequate ones will be discarded. Thus, with very few exceptions, no idea should be suppressed, lest the marketplace cease to function. But can the marketplace of ideas survive in a post-truth world? And is it even an adequate theory of free speech at all? These matters are, of course, brought into particularly sharp relief during the current coronavirus pandemic as a considerable amount of misinformation has found its way quickly into the public domain, some of it spread by our leaders. Joining me to discuss the marketplace of ideas in this post-truth world are Ronell Anderson-Jones of the S.J. Quinney College of Law, University of Utah. Hi, Ronell. Hi, Tom. And my usual co-conspirator on the podcast, Paul Ragg of the University of Leeds. Hi, Paul. Hi, Tom. So, the marketplace of ideas. This all started, I'll tell listeners the story of how the podcast came up, how we came up with this idea for the episode. Uh, another academic who shall remain nameless posted a slightly tongue-in-cheek post on social media looking at some of uh, President Donald Trump's musings about coronavirus and proposing the question whether the marketplace of ideas theory was valid any longer or had uh, Donald Trump and misinformation around COVID-19 killed off the marketplace of ideas theory and justification for free speech. Now there was something tongue in cheek about the original uh, social media post, but I thought it would actually make for a good podcast. Um, And so uh, Perhaps we could start by thinking about 
about the marketplace of ideas theory, what its core features are, and why it's risen to a level of prominence in free speech jurisprudence in the United States in particular? I think that the core features of the marketplace of ideas uh, theory in general is that we treat the search for truth by individuals in a society the same way as we treat the search for the very best good in a um, real economic marketplace. Uh, The analogy um, isn't apt in a lot of ways, but it has been embraced jurisprudentially by at least some justices of the U.S. Supreme Court and by a lot of theorists uh, in talking about and justifying our very broad protections for free speech and freedom of the press in the United States. And the thinking is that truth and falsity will sort of battle it out the same way that the market for smartphones will battle it out, that uh, people will put their products out there and uh, the cream of the crop will rise to the top and uh, the best will prevail, this kind of ultimate fighting championship between truth and falsity. And um, you know, truth will emerge, the victor, um, maybe a little uh, you know, bloodied and uh, worse for the wear, but uh, we will select the best ideas and um, truth will emerge having beaten uh, the competing ideas because it will be better. Uh, the critique uh, of it, uh, of this theory is significant and multifaceted, but I do think that it is a theory that lives on um, as a sort of pulsating undercurrent of a lot of American jurisprudence. Paul, you've written a fair bit about the uh, marketplace of ideas and JS Mill, haven't you? Yeah, certainly. I certainly have, Tom. Um, So one of the things that um, I go on about a lot in my writing is uh, a sort of consistent uh, criticism of the way that uh, mill is associated with the, the marketplace of ideas. Um, as, as you said in the introduction, mill is associated with the uh, marketplace of ideas. Um, the the concept itself comes from uh, a discussion by um, a very prominent American judge in the uh, early 20th century, uh, um, and he himself uh, made this reference uh, to um, uh, to Mill. Um, the reality, though, is that I think Mill's theory of uh, free speech and the marketplace of ideas are, in fact, uh, very different at their core, despite a kind of superficial, superficial similarity. And the reason for that is, uh, in essence, this. Uh, the marketplace of ideas is a sort of, uh, or has been treated as a kind of consequentialist argument um, that certain outcomes will arise, including um, the predominance of truth over falsity. Whereas Mill's understanding um, of free speech is non-consequentialist. He's not making any predictions about uh, truth's superiority to falsehood. In fact, um, in his book on liberty, in which he sets out his free speech theory, um, he makes the the point explicit that he regards this as a fallacy, a pleasant fallacy, this idea that truth will always um, survive and come out on top. Instead, what Mill is saying is that if we want to discover truth, 
then the best circumstances in which we may do that is where uh, individuals can freely contest the premises of what has been discussed. And really at the heart of Mill's argument is the strong conviction that if you force someone to believe that a particular statement is true, then you deny the truth properties, you undermine the truth properties of the statement. Because, um, first of all, if you sort of say, well, this is true and it can't be uh, challenged as anything but true, as the church used to do, um, then two things happen. Um, first of all, people lose uh, their critical abilities um, they they come to accept something as true, but they don't know the reasons for that. Um, and the second thing is, that is the kind of behaviour that authoritarian governments uh, indulge in and in bad consequences. So what Mill's really saying is not anything positive about uh, truth or free speech. What he's really talking about is the horrors of the alternative. We're going to spend, I think, much of this podcast looking at um, the marketplace theory in the United States. But um, since we're on the European side of the pond um, recording this, at least you and I are, Paul, um, is it worth just contextualizing free speech theory as it is commonly rehearsed in in Europe and particularly in the United Kingdom, where I think the marketplace theory is less foundational to a lot of our jurisprudence. Yeah, so, um, I, well, I think, first of all, we should we should premise this uh, discussion uh, by observing uh, the, the significant flaws in... Uh, both UK and Strasbourg jurisprudence when it comes to free speech, because I think both jurisdictions can be uh, accused of having an under-theorised account of free speech. In the UK context, um, our ideas about free speech tend to be led by causes of action in which speech arises. And so we don't really have a sort of coherent notion of free speech per se. But what we do have is a collection of cases that tell us when and when we cannot speak uh, in context that, for example, threaten someone's reputation uh, or um, interfere with uh, uh, privacy um, or which um, threaten uh, public safety uh, circumstances where we are, for example, protesting. and things like this. In at a Strasbourg level, um, the nature of the European Court of Human Rights is such that um, the court makes uh, statements about uh, free speech and free speech protection, which sound uh, like they are the- theoretically coherent, um, but they are in fact a sort of jumble of principles which have come out of the different contexts uh, in which free speech decisions have been decided and therefore don't really sit together together as a sort of coherent theory um, as such. Now, from that starting point, as long as we've got that caveat in mind, I think we can point to uh, decisions uh, both in the UK 
and Strasbourg, where we can see things that look like uh, theories of free speech. And at this point, it might be useful to just summarise the, the four key theories of free speech um, that tend to be a, a adopted um, as uh, orth the orthodox theories. Um, those are the argument from uh, democratic participation, uh, the argument from truth, which of course includes the marketplace of ideas, um, the argument from self-fulfillment and the argument from autonomy. Um, each of these different theories uh, tends to emphasise uh, different uh, points, but what's common between a lot, a lot of them is this idea that certain types of speech are more important than other types of speech and that therefore we should look to uh, determine cases based upon which type of speech at stake and how valuable we think it to be. So, for example, in the uh, Strasbourg jurisprudence, it's been said that political speech uh, is most keenly protected by the courts, uh, followed by uh, artistic expression, which is not quite as keenly protected, and last of all, commercial expression, uh, which the courts tend to attract very little, um, tend to give very little attention to, tend to give very little protection to. And we can see traits, um, similar traits in the UK case law, um, such that I think we can say, in very general terms, the UK and European position uh, seems to follow from the argument uh, from democratic participation, which is a theory most commonly associated uh, with a chap called Alexander Meeklejohn, um, who was American, or was American, and is essentially the idea that free speech is protected for the contribution it makes to democratic participation. Um, so the marketplace of ideas, which clearly has taken a much deeper hold in US jurisprudence, uh, much of it based around the First Amendment to the US Constitution, which for European listeners, is the uh, free speech clause of the U.S. Constitution. Um, the marketplace theory has taken much deeper hold there than it has in Europe, but it's premised upon a number of assumptions about what the audience will do with information that's in the marketplace. Um, Ronell, this is something that you've been looking into. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what you've what, what you've uncovered. Yeah, uh, particularly in response to some of these uh, post-truthism uh, observations that you described earlier, um, I've been thinking a lot about the assumptions that our Supreme Court seems to have made about audience members and their uh, consumption habits, uh, their behaviors and capabilities in a marketplace of ideas. Um, in comparison to modern social science evidence about how, as a just as a matter of cognitive uh, behavioral uh, analysis, we actually do um, behave and what our actual capabilities are, and it, it does turn out that at least some of the core assumptions that the Supreme Court seems to be making about information consumers 
is no longer true or maybe was never true about us as a matter of just sort of um, brain science. Um, the social science evidence suggests that the Supreme Court's assumptions about our truth-seeking um, and the way that we can update information and the way that we process rationally or irrationally information um, is flawed. <laughs> it, it turns out there's a pretty strong empirical evidence that people actually have a wide variety of motivations other than truth-seeking when they are consuming information. Uh, they are uh, working really hard to preserve their limited cognitive resources. And, um, and we've seen, I think, the COVID example that you're exploring today shows that um, motivated by expressing and protecting our identities, right, our cultural and our political identities. And so our deliberate decision-making is actually um, not uh, that deliberate. We're processing information in really biased ways and doing it in ways that are uh, sort of more motivated to confirm our pre-existing views, to sort of conform to those cultural commitments or the political priors that we have. And so while the Supreme Court is out there writing about these consumers of information in the marketplace of ideas who are uh, listening to new and updated information and um, adjusting their views on the basis of more and better news, uh, it turns out that there are some really significant, very real barriers to rationally updating your prior beliefs, uh, that your prior beliefs are pretty sticky and so those factual judgments are pretty difficult to dislodge and you um, maybe don't behave in the way, some of the fundamental ways that the Supreme Court assumes you behave in the marketplace of ideas. Ronell, um, one of the things that I was sort of um, have been thinking about, and I think this applies in both the UK and, and America, is, is this idea that um, the courts, the way that the courts sort of treat free speech, it kinds of... Kind, it leaves them vulnerable and reliant upon a sort of sociological data set that they just don't possess. Uh, this idea of, um, in terms of the marketplace of ideas, what ideas people find attractive, how they actually act, um, or even in the UK context, this idea of people valuing political expression more than non-political expression and therefore one being more important than the other. Um, what do you think about this sort of um, position that the courts have put themselves in? Yeah, I do think, uh, I mean, we generally, as a matter of American jurisprudence, we tell ourselves uh, that the courts, the role of the courts in the United States is not to sort of make a marker at any given moment in time and um, map constitutional jurisprudence onto the current uh, social science thinking, because it's dangerous to do so, right? That jurisprudential themes should be uh, higher order than that and not have the courts sort of getting down into the weeds about what the current thinking is about um, uh, our psychological or um, interpersonal selves. Here, uh, the court has actually sort of done the opposite, I think. In some respects, it's not engaged the social science evidence at all, uh, and has just uh, sort of made really broad, quite sweeping assumptions about human nature, and particularly about the nature of truth and the nature of information flow uh, that are old, right? They, they loop back, as you say, um, to Holmes and to others um, who embraced this theory of the marketplace of ideas um, 
the better part of a century ago. And we don't um, we don't see the court really engaging. And that's the that's the thing that we've really discovered in this inquiry is that the court isn't ever explicitly saying why it thinks these things about consumers, why it believes that they engage in truth seeking or rational processing or updating, just that they do, uh, just that this marketplace of ideas assumption um, exists. And um, whether or not they should engage the social science, I guess, is a matter of some debate. But um, the failure to do so means that they may well be operating on a set of factual assumptions that guide their jurisprudential assumptions uh, that could be um, harmful in terms of the doctrinal outcomes. Yeah. And and this is one of the the key differences, I think, between um, John Stuart Mill's argument from truth uh, and the way that the marketplace of ideas has established itself in, in American jurisprudence in that um, for Mill, the value of expression, the perceived value of expression, just has no place in the calculus at all. So that when law... Uh, comes to decide if particular types of speech should be protected or not, the court is thinking only in terms of questions of harm. Um, is the Essentially, is the speech harmful to a particular individual or to a community? Um, and if the answer to that is yes, to then think through the nature um of that harm and to think through its sort of justifiability in terms of uh, in terms of other rights. So, in, in other words, um, those sort of factual questions that arise are the type of factual questions that can be unearthed in a courtroom because you will have the individuals before you, the claimant and the defendant, whoever they may be, and the judge can test the audience but in a marketplace of ideas context as you say the judge can't test the um evidence yeah i think uh i think you've hit the nail on the head about um a wider point about american free speech jurisprudence which is that uh every theory that we engage here the marketplace of and, and we like the eu and uk um uh, do have competing themes, right? The marketplace of ideas, in fact, uh, the marketplace theory in some, in at least some areas of free speech jurisprudence has waned uh, because of other critiques, right? That uh, the idea that truth will win out uh, over falsity in the long run uh, doesn't really matter if the long run is so very long that all of that harm happens in the interim uh, or that more pointedly that the marketplace of ideas theory is flawed because um, the marketplace of ideas might need regulation uh, just like ordinary old uh, economic market do, right? Uh, there's yeah. problems with it being controlled by a few prominent market actors and there's not real competition in the marketplace. But yeah. uh, all of our competing themes, the marketplace alongside those other themes, the uh, democracy enhancement uh, rationale and the individual autonomy rationale and the governmental accountability checking function rationale, they are all um, uh, very value focused in the US and less harm focused. We um, start with a sort of heavy rock on the scale uh, in the direction of value, uh, driven in part by the primacy of our First Amendment, right? It, it is yeah. a constitutional norm that suggests uh, that our all of our theorizing goes towards the question of how valuable it is to have free speech in a democracy. And then uh, the harm equation comes in much later, sort of post-theorizing in ways that complicate 
um, the questioning when, um, when we poke at the theory itself because of its inability to consider harm. Yeah. And I think that that's something that sort of, in fact, you've just reminded me of um, a, a famous article that uh, a judge in the 60s wrote, a chap called Robert Bork, um, sort of advocating the idea that actually the job of courts is to weed out um, important political speech from non-important uh, other speech um, and so protect the first and not the, the rest. Bork's theory is um, a deeply contestable one, in part because uh, figuring out where, if you were going to sort of draw a circle of First Amendment free speech protection and then draw some core in the middle uh, where uh, only political speech would reside, requires us to decide that some conversations about some matters don't advance our politics or our democracy. And uh, the sort of competing position here is that, uh, that who's to say that conversations about uh, art or culture or religion or society uh, might not um, turn into political, politically important questions that advance our democracy in key ways. And so that the question of inability to draw a line there was really problematic. Yeah, and and this sort of swings um, to my mind. This swings us back to um, a discussion about uh, fake news uh, and what's to be done with fake news. Because um, my concern about the way that the marketplace of ideas is discussed uh, in certainly the academic literature, but also the popular debate, is this idea that that sort of truth is is digital truth takes a digital form it I, something either is the truth or it is not the truth and we can uh, distinguish between the two and also this idea that the marketplace of ideas um it, it sort of treats uh, the human as a, a homogenous unit in that when the human sees truth they will all see it as truth um, or they will all reject it as as falsehood. Um, what it doesn't do is what John Stuart Mill's argument does, which is to recognise this idea of truth as a sort of uh, never-ending process in which ideas uh, are contested and in which actually the value of discussion is not in uh, agreement, but actually in disagreement, that through disagreement, uh, we can uh, reach um, intermediate positions, which we might later uh, want to check back upon and see whether they work for us and change them if necessary. Yeah, I think uh, I think that idea of um, truth uh, not being an on-off switch is a really interesting one to think about, given uh, the sort of current. Uh, problem of polarization in American politics, which is sort of mm -hmm. one of the key ways that I've been thinking about how um, the Supreme Court's assumptions about how the marketplace will work differ mm -hmm. from the sort of boots on the ground reality about how people consume and process and update information. Uh, I mean, we, uh, we are seeing in very real time right now the extent to which basic factual decision-making in the United States and elsewhere uh, will be driven by pre-existing political priors and party loyalty above all else. And that um, is not envisioned by the Supreme Court jurisprudence that I've been studying in their marketplace of ideas approach. And one example, 
the um, the ongoing fight over um, hydroxychloroquine. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. It is unbelievable to sort of watch, de- depending on what news provider you have up on your television screen at any given moment, uh, mm-hmm. you would walk away believing that this was a miracle drug uh, that would uh, raise the dead um, or that it was a toxic poison, right? Uh, those are the only two choices. And the, um, the the scientists are desperately out there trying to say to us, um, here's how science works, right? Um, this is currently an unproven as a treatment for COVID-19, which at mm-hmm. base means it needs study, right? We know very little about it in yeah. terms of total potential scientific understanding that we could have, but Americans occupy these sort of two stark positions on it. It is a miracle drug because President Trump publicly promoted it and announced that he's taking it, or it is to be absolutely and permanently avoided because Trump publicly promoted it. And uh, there's you know news now uh, that uh, some people are actually reluctant to study it. Some scientists who were in the midst yeah. of trying to study it and its uh, relationship to coronavirus are reporting that they're having trouble getting people to participate in studies because of the opposite reaction, right? So Mm -hmm. scientists seeking facts are criticized merely for seeking them. uh, And they are saying, we just, you know, want to do, uh, we want to do a competition of the marketplace of ideas, the sort of scientific method. We want to learn if it has benefits that outweigh the risk, but that subtlety does not map onto uh, how we are engaging the marketplace of ideas as American information consumers. It doesn't fit in with politics where we're supposed to be uh, an on-off switch, right? And I think it's just one of um, many, many dangerous stories of um, information consumption in this post-truthism space, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Dealing with COVID, right? Masks and social distancing and the debate over the rate uh, at which businesses should be opened and, you know, the utility of various testing mechanisms. It, Mm -hmm. It turns out that uh, facts don't matter for people as much as emotion and belonging. And uh, the Trump era has really exacerbated this in the United States because he draws these stark lines himself and does try to make truth or falsity um, a a digital on-off switch. And what's true is um, what he says to you. And um, what's false is what um, the others, right? Whoever those others are, um, the enemies, say. And that's a very complicated space to be in, particularly in the midst of a pandemic. Well, what's interesting, in fact, what I'm finding fascinating uh, as an observer who is both um, who is inside the COVID pandemic, but also trying to think as a, as a sort of later commentator outside of it, is, is just, in fact, how Donald Trump is playing the exact same role Jude Law played in the film Contagion. He's following, he's following exactly the same script. And if you remember the Jude Law character, it turns out had um, shares in, in this, this false drug that he was advertising. So presumably that's what's going to happen here. Um, well, look, it, one of the things that I'm really interested in is actually sort of thinking through the consequences of uh, these theories in, in the way that, that you've described, uh, Ronell, and, and in your paper as well. Um, and just sort of thinking through this idea of even if we took the marketplace of ideas literally, and even if we said um, that uh, 
yes, the true ideas uh, will flourish and then the untrue ideas won't and therefore we can sort of safely exclude the the untrue ideas, et cetera, et cetera. It sort of leads to a position where where we sort of assume that we, whoever we might be, a sort of branch of government or a, non, a branch of non-government, whatever that means, um, can effectively start filtering out information and saying to people, saying to the audience, right, this is the only information that you need to see and all the rest is is just garbage, right? This idea of sort of processing information to, to distinguish the, the good from the bad. Now, that for me is incredibly problematic for, for two reasons. Um, first of all, and Mill anticipates this, of course, it, it sort of presupposes that we actually can recognize truth ourselves. Um, but also it's incredibly paternalistic. Um, and the second issue is it's it's incredibly superior. It's this idea, it's a kind of elitist idea at root, this idea that um, actually there, there are people um, who are qualified to do this thing of, of selection. Um, and it kind of makes me laugh when I sort of read these stories um, in the newspaper where people are sort of saying, well, we need to do something about fake news and this is the fake news because that to me reads as if that person's saying, right, everyone else is going to get fooled by this, but I don't, but I'm alone, but everybody else is at risk. And there doesn't seem to be that sort of self-awareness of, of that problem. Yeah, I um, I agree that a major flaw of at least one variant of the marketplace of ideas theory is that it presupposes that truth is an end, right? Uh, and, and which would mean that um, uh, once we found it, we were good, we were golden. We had no, we would no longer have any need for freedom of speech, uh, and we would also need someone to declare when we had reached that end, right? And presumably, placing the government in that position would be wholly contrary uh, to other core First Amendment values uh, in terms of uh, the, the risks of authoritarianism. Um, I, I think, uh, and one of the things that I've uh, concluded in thinking about this gap between what the Supreme Court thinks about audience members and what the Supreme Court, uh, what the sort of reality is about audience capability and, cap- and behavior is that Um, We might better think of the marketplace of ideas as a process, right, that um, there is a the search for truth, the ongoing effort to try um, to get better at seeking what is true over what is false uh, in a society um, would involve some process and that we might want um, to protect constitutionally and do protect constitutionally. We have a press clause in our um, First Amendment we could protect institutions that were market enhancing, uh, that were engaging in behaviors that helped uh, us as individual limitation holding information consumers be able to sort um, truth for, from falsity, right? Um, ask important questions about independent pursuit of the truth and careful examination of the facts. And, you know, uh, is the accused allowed to respond? And are all the sources named and cited? And if not, uh, you know, is the reason explained. So uh, institutions like the press that could act as market enhancing institutions that could help us, even though we don't necessarily possess the truth seeking or rational processing or information updating capabilities that the court assumes, we could get closer to being able to perform that function if there were entities out there 
uh, that we're um, engaging in fact checking, that we're working um, to try to transparently describe to us uh, the process that they're engaging in to reveal the answers to those kinds of questions to us, mm -hmm. uh, that might get us um, some distance uh, within that process. And uh, on the COVID front, there's actually at least some evidence that the American information consumer, when faced with something this deadly and this frightening and this mm -hmm. um, er sort of earth shatteringly changing for them, are seeking that. Uh, so there's uh, the the three uh, broadcast network evening newscasts in America, which had long since waned, right? So the old days of Walter Cronkite, who was our sort of um, stereotypical neutral transpartisan gatekeeper uh, from yeah. the press, had long since waned in favor of these um, very uh, politically polarized uh, cable news uh, stations that kind of toggle from straight reporting to partisan commentary. And uh, the the recent data over the last um, you know five or six weeks um, here in the U.S. suggests that there's a massive uptick in um, audience for those um, sort of more neutral center line uh, broadcast network evening evening newscasts. Uh, their their rates of viewership are their highest in you know 20, 25 years, um, perhaps because. Uh, at some point when your life is actually at stake, right? Um, when you actually have to make determinations about what really is true, people might be craving a more depoliticized take on, um, yeah. on the crisis. I think that's right about the um, the value of sort of independent uh, fact checkers uh, as, as such. And of course, as you say, there are organizations that will play this role alongside the, the press, a place like uh, Fact Check, for example. Um, the, the concern, though, for me, which I think probably goes beyond the sort of concern in, in relation to law, but it's, it's the um, sort of sociological concern. For these kind of organizations to serve their purpose and to have value requires the audience to um, adopt a sense of responsibility, a sense of responsibility to discover truth uh, for themselves and not simply to expect to be fed truth um, in, in bite-sized uh, pieces in, in this kind of dependent way, you know, like, like some kind of tiny chicks waiting for the, the mother bird um, to spit chewed up bits of truth in, into their mouths. And so it's this withering away of individual responsibility which concerns me in the in the debate on on truth and what um, places like the press uh, should be doing. What we need is a is a more discerning um, audience, and this what was what Mill was getting at with this idea of dead dogma. This idea that if certain um, propositions are just accepted as uh, indubitable by the audience, then they lose this power to recognize truth um, and the basis for the truth. And they begin to just repeat things. Um, and so it becomes incredibly empty. And actually, the best example of this, I think, comes not from Mill, um, but actually from H.G. Wells, uh, in his book, um, The Time Machine, or better yet, the way that the time machine was brought to the screen uh, in the uh, sort of 1950s, 1960s, 
And it was that idea of two cultures existing in the future, the Eloi and the Morlocks. The Eloi um, have not advanced past the 1940s. And so they hear um, a, an alarm go off, a siren go off, warning them of um, a bomb being dropped in 1940s London. And they, they go into the shelter. But actually, the shelter contains not a place of safety, but actually the murderous Morlocks um, who eat them. The point is that they no longer contest this idea. They simply follow it, not because of reason, but because of habit. Yeah, so I, I think, um, I guess the way that I think of this is that I, I agree that we need a starting proposition um, that describes to people, I think as a matter actually of civic education, right, a sort of core component of civic education from childhood on ought to be uh, that you uh, have an obligation to be an educated, thoughtful, careful uh, information consumer uh, in a democracy, and that um, you are likely uh, to gravitate uh, to some of these information consumption limitations, that um, you're, you're likely uh, to um, take shortcuts, uh, that you're likely to be um, subjected to, that it, it isn't the uh, the other people in the way that you describe. It isn't just that those sad other people are likely to be misled um, and um, uh, tribalistic in their information consumption, but that all of us are. But I think that um, two things can happen simultaneously, right? Uh, the court, but also the people, uh, could acknowledge the flaws of individual information seekers without abandoning the you know, aspiration of fact-based public reasoning and could say, uh, we want um, jurisprudentially, but also societally to strengthen the institutions that promote those norms um, and, that, and, and we want to suggest to individual information seekers how they can use press coverage to compensate for their own shortcomings, right? And um, use that to fulfill their democratic responsibilities. They're in control. Uh, they're opting to use these tools that give them uh, the capacity to do that. But we constitutionally want to protect the institutions that have the capacity to do that so that, um, as you say, right, at least the conditions that we create for truth seeking are uh, more ideal than they are at the moment. It's clear that truth seeking is absolutely central to the marketplace of ideas. And the concerns I have about the marketplace of ideas notion uh, are a bit different to Paul's in that. What? <laughs> I know. <laughs> the heretic that I am. Um, I'm not at all convinced that the marketplace of ideas has ever had any realistic prospect, and some might even say it was never even designed to promote truth. If we think about an economic marketplace, to go back to the analogy we made right at the start, there is this idea that in an economic marketplace, the producers of goods compete to produce the best goods for the marketplace and the marketplace of consumers weeds out the bad goods and the good goods survive. Um, but I've, at least in recent times, been taking a rather different view of marketplaces, which is that in a marketplace of goods, producers compete 
to sell the lowest quality good they can get away with at the highest price that they can manage to charge. And uh, if I'm right about that, and that's a big if, then there'd be um, analogical issues for the marketplace of ideas. What we're in the marketplace of ideas trying to do, if we're a news producer, is not produce truth, but to produce a saleable product, something that people want to consume. And that might well be something that is highly partisan, something that is factually inaccurate, but aligns with the views that people already hold. And one of the things I was really struck in the, the paper that, that, that you've written, Ronell, is when you talk about um, the amount of social science research that goes into showing that uh, individuals seek out, particularly in times of, of, of stress, in times of strife, times of trouble, um, seek out information that accords with their existing views, that enables them to feel secure in their own culture, in their own political beliefs. Uh, is the marketplace of ideas really just a way of producing something to sell people rather than producing anything objectively true? Yeah, I think that this question is a really important one. And um, you've hit on something that is a much wider concern uh, for me at the sort of confluence of journalism and democracy in my country in particular, which is the problems created by the ways that our American system of journalism has so thoroughly mapped the marketplace of ideas onto the actual economic marketplace, right? We have, um, by and large, almost wholly, uh, private advertising supported media infrastructure uh, versus um, most other um, active, vibrant democracies in the world that have some public supported model and see journalism uh, as a public good. I, I appreciate uh, this is maybe not the perfect moment to be drawing upon, for example, the BBC model, which I understand has its flaws and especially right now is um, being subjected to some major critiques. But the version that we've got going on here where um, the ability of a news organization uh, to sort of step outside uh, that profit-driven, um, exclusively profit-driven model that you describe and to um, act as a, a neutral, transpartisan gatekeeper of um, fair information um, is particularly strained at this moment. And uh, the sort of death of newspapers and other core news gatherers is one of the really strangest and saddest pieces of what's happening during this pandemic. It's created this strange space for the media industry because people are actually consuming news like never before, right? Uh, people are hungry for information. And um, these spikes in readership are coming alongside these massive, sudden, stark uh, drops in advertising revenue because there are um, uh, no businesses remaining, right? The economic hit that has happened here means that there's nobody to uh, buy the ads that sustain it. And our business models for public affairs and public interest journalism in the United States were broken well before this, right? And the changing information landscape and the advertising dominance of a couple big social media platforms and search engines, Facebook and Google in particular, was already working this pretty significant hardship. And 
because the ad revenue um, does exactly what you describe, right? It's click driven, right? Uh, uh, and it, it goes almost entirely to those few companies engaging in repeatage and not to those engaging in uh, public serving reportage. But the pandemic has accelerated their demise. And so we see these weird situations like the um, the publisher of the uh, San Francisco Examiner in the very week in which the Examiner announced that it had 6,000 times its usual traffic. Uh, the publisher announced that they were cutting the hours and pay and furloughing some employees and temporarily halting the um, the print edition uh, because we don't ha we haven't uh, mapped our journalism delivery product here uh, onto a true marketplace of ideas so much as we've mapped it onto an actual marketplace and that um, that notion that people um, have to make a buck <laughs> is actually uh, you were you were saying it in an analogous way right describing an analogy but I'm saying that in the United States we're actually experiencing it in a more concrete, um, absolute way that um, the marketplace, the marketplace marketplace um, is um, hamstringing our marketplace of ideas. Yeah, I'm very, very sympathetic to, to, to that problem. Um, and uh, it's a problem that, that arises in the UK as well. And there, there, there have been, and in fact, it's a problem, not just in the US and the UK, this is, a, this is a world problem. And, and different countries have adopted um, different approaches um, to it, but I think I'm right in saying that Canada uh, is making funds available for public interest journalism. Um, I think I'm right in saying that. But um, imagine though, if Donald Trump was to make funds available for public interest journalism, I appreciate it would be driven not directly from Donald Trump's office. Um, but one can imagine the difficulties that arise um, in certainly in principle, but quite possibly in practice, if a, a government entity is then actually providing money to drive certain types of uh, journalism, it would require not only it would essentially require the provision of funds with very little questions asked about what's being produced as a consequence um, of those funds. Um, and and I think that then can still lead to exactly the same problems that the kind of journalism that is being done is not necessarily the best kind of journalism, and um, because there can be no government filter, I don't think, of uh, quality. And if that's the case, then the question that I guess we're faced with is: Can the marketplace of ideas survive? Is, is it possible to have a genuine marketplace of ideas? If it is possible to have one at all, uh, and my views on the matter notwithstanding, um, is it possible for a marketplace of ideas to survive post-truthism? I think that the point is incredibly well taken. The point's incredibly well taken that when we um, try to think about um, solutions that might involve uh, government public funding of journalism in the United States, which would be a, a radical shift, an incredibly radical shift from uh, the model that we've embraced um, really since uh, for, for the entirety of uh, the modern journalistic era. Um, doing it, doing so at the very moment at which we have a president at the helm who has been um, the the 
biggest, um, most um, open criticizer of journalism as a public institution and journalism as a democracy enhancing institution, and who has um, quite openly uh, sort of suggested that he would like uh, journalism to be a, a mouthpiece uh, for him rather than uh, to serve any kind of um, checking or accountability or transparency function uh, is really, really complicated. I mean, my understanding is that there are other systems in the world. I've, I've been, um, I, this isn't my a primary scholarly area, but I've been uh, reading in, uh, a lot and talking uh, to folks who have thought about this. And um, there are mechanisms um, by which, and the two of you probably know this better than I do, uh, given the BBC model even, mechanisms for separating the uh, uh, the journalistic mandate um, from the source of funding, but it becomes an incredibly uh, complicated uh, dynamic. And the question of whether we have so thoroughly embraced uh, both the marketplace of ideas and the corporate journalistic marketplace in the United States that we are, are past the point of no return and could not unwind to such um, an approach, I think is a really, really fair one. Um, it's heartbreaking to me, right, and panic-inducing to see um, jobs disappearing for some of the most talented journalists in this country at the very moment that they're doing some of the most vital work that the public has ever needed from the press. And so uh, this particular moment uh, forces us to ask these questions, um, not just in the theoretical, but um, in the uh, sort of really concrete and practical. How will we uh, continue to have the uh, free flow of information on matters of public concern um, at times of real need when we um, don't create or um, have no sustainable model for providing um, information that people need as compared to um, information that will um, be paid for uh, <laughs> in advertising revenues or clicks or, or um, other financially incentivized ways. So my own view on the marketplace of ideas is that I actually think, uh, in spite of everything I've just said, it does have a future and it can still be valuable. Um, but I think that our understanding of it uh, needs to radically alter. Um, first of all, of course, I would adv advocate a more sort of million uh, understanding of it. But if that wasn't possible, um, then I would say, we need to be more discerning in terms of uh, who it is we think the marketplace of ideas um, must appeal to in order to be successful. This idea that uh, there needs to be consensus for the marketplace of ideas, I think, is the is the source of the problem. But actually, Holmes's view that the best ideas do come to the surface does, of course, exist in a literal sense that. Um, good ideas that have commercial power, good ideas that have scientific value or academic value do eventually come to the surface. They do influence society in a very meaningful way. The fact that it doesn't apply as neatly uh, as it could do in a political sense, of course, doesn't, I think, spell uh, an end for it because what happens with political ideas and the best political ideas is that they then influence uh, politicians and those who um, are in uh, the political forum can influence a political debate at a central level. And so it's those individuals that then represent the best ideas when they look for um, support as candidates for election. 
doesn't work perfectly, but it still has uh, value uh, as a free speech theory. Well, thank you both. We are uh, out of time, um, but thank you both for joining me. Uh, before we go, I just should point listeners in the direction of Ranel's paper, co-authored with Lisa Grosson, uh, called Freedom of the Press in Post-Truthism America. Uh, there's a draft uh, on SSRN for uh, academics, um, but it's forthcoming in uh, Washington University Law Review later on this year. So uh, do keep an eye out for that. And if you want more on uh, Ranel's views, uh, they're elaborated on in that piece. It's a, an excellent piece. Thank you both for uh, joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Tom. And uh, we'll be back as and when. Uh, the uh, Media Law Podcast likely to take a break for a few weeks now because academic marketing season is upon us. Um, but uh, we'll be back before too long until then. Take care, stay safe.